Okay. Well, it's good to hear that that generated some discussion. I encourage you to keep talking about it at morning tea because I think there's a lot of really funny ones that we don't realise that we're saying. So we are in week three of our metaphors or images of the Old Testament series. And this week, we're going to look at the image of gardens. Did you know that there are over 125 different plants mentioned in our scripture? That's not 125 different times. That's just the variation of all the plants that are mentioned. Gardens and their plants play a really massive role in our scripture. Now, I'm going to break the rules a little bit today because it's an Old Testament series But I'm also going to look at how uh, this profound image of the Old Testament is going to be transformed by Jesus uh, in the New Testament as he further crafts uh, this imagery. All that to say, rather than looking at one passage of scripture today, as Marg has read out to us, we're going to do a bit of a highlights tour of the Old and New Testament. And so I encourage you that if any of these individual scriptures spark a response in you today of a bit of curiosity or something like that, then please, please don't just leave it today. Return to it during your week. Use it during your devotional time. Come and send me an email or knock on my uh, door during the week and let's have a chat about them because they're all really great passages. But a great place for us to start is on page two of most of our Bibles, if you're still reading from a hard copy like I am, and that's in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, which is, gives us the story of creation centering around a garden. And this really tells us just how important this imagery is in our Bibles, because it uses the garden to set a foundation for all that's going to follow. So what are we told about this garden in Genesis 2 and 3? Well, we're told that God plants a garden and that God is the gardener. And in that garden, he puts the humans. And God plants all types of trees in the garden. God plants trees that are good for eating, so trees that nourish our physical being and health, but also trees that are just beautiful to look at, nourishing the mind and the soul and the creative sense of humanity that God has gifted. And God tells humans to work in that garden, to be gardeners or co-workers alongside God. And at the very centre of the garden, God places a magnificent tree, the tree of life. And this tree represents God's own creative life and power, which God wants to make available to others, to the humans. This is the tree that sustains and provides and creates. It's God's spirit or life force, if you will. Well, over the Christmas break, I also went down to Wonthaggy, like where Marg was talking about the beautiful garden that she visits. And I visited my best friend and I stayed with her. And she's a midwife. And so she came home from work one day and was talking about how she was worried about a certain patient because there seemed to be an issue with the umbilical cord and she explained a little more to me because I've never had a baby so I didn't understand the intricacies that this umbilical cord is there to connect mum and baby creating a connection that would see this little baby grow and thrive in mum's womb giving it life 
And she said it's even cooler because some studies suggest that the baby also receives chemical messages and emotions through the cord that creates this beautiful bond and connection to their mums. Well, I like to think of the tree of life in the garden a little bit like an umbilical cord between God and humanity. Not only is it an image of God's life force and spirit being given into creation, helping it grow and to live and to thrive, but it's also creating the bond and the connection between God and humanity. But alongside this tree in the garden, we're told of another. We're told of the garden of the, uh, the, sorry, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if humans choose to eat from this tree, they will die. Now, this wasn't to say that it was a toxic, poisonous fruit that if they bit it, they would drop dead straight away. No, this tree was an image again for turning from God, of humanity denying God's life force and spirit because they thought they knew better. So what's the consequence of eating from this tree? It's that they become cut off from the tree of life, that umbilical cord, if you will, that connects humans directly to God and it will be severed. And so they become banished from the garden. And it tells us in verse 22, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from that tree of life and eat and live forever. The Lord banished banished him from the garden of Eden. And so then we find throughout the Old Testament, after they're banished, that humanity is trying all of these things, laws and rituals and appointing kings and prophets and priests, all in an effort to reinstate this connection, this perfect and complete connection to God, their maker, God, the life force, God, the ultimate gardener. Now, the reason that that's really important for us to know is because throughout the Old Testament, We're going to encounter lots of stories and images and songs and prayers about gardens and trees and even streams or planting. And as we do, part of our memory should light up and point us back to the garden in Genesis 2 and 3, as it would have for the original hearers of the Old Testament. And the picture of garden and the tree of life at the centre, should remind us, as it did the ancient Israelites, of the ultimate and unbroken connection that once existed between them and God, the one that they are yearning for again. Now, this is where I'm going to break the rules a little bit because we're going to jump out of the Old Testament uh, because I think to understand the garden imagery Uh, for that ultimate connection with the creator, with God, we need to turn to the New Testament. I want you to think about all the times that Jesus spoke about gardens or gardening. All the times that Jesus talks about planting and sowing and watering, 
fruits and vines and grapes, all this stuff that comes from the gardening process. And Jesus craftily teaches out of this imagery of gardening. Now, when I moved to this church, I moved suburbs and I left behind my teeny apartment. Um, And for the first time in my adult life, I moved to a home that had a garden. On the balcony of my teeny apartment back in St Kilda, I'd managed to cultivate a small succulent garden in a pot. And in doing so, it had given me maybe an inflated confidence to think that I might just have more of a green thumb than I thought. So as I looked over my new suburban block, which the previous tenant had let become kind of like a football field, just grass everywhere, I was filled with hope for all the things that we could grow. And my husband, Jordan, he decided, okay, I'm going to temper her expectations a little. I think he was a little bit worried that my jump from 30 square centimetres to a whole back garden uh, could lead to some disappointment. And so he, the active gardener of the two of us, took on the back garden, cultivating veggies and herbs and flowers. It was beautiful. And he suggested that I start with a uh, small garden bed in the front. And so I took it on and off I go to Bunnings excitedly. I filled my cart with so many potted colours and all the things that I thought looked pretty. And then I shoved them all in the ground. The following week we had a heat wave and there were about 50% casualties that week. And I began to realise this was not going to be like other hobbies that I had picked up. There were so many variables at play. So much variation in the types of plants, their needs, so much that was out of my control. I had to learn about soil quality and drainage and weeding and pruning and watering schedules and fertilising and stalking. And honestly, no matter how much Gardening Australia I watched, how much Costa made it seem possible, it was exhausting and confusing and not a hobby for a lazy person. And I often found myself Googling, is this plant dead or just really sad? (laughs) However, for the first time, I had an appreciation of why Jesus and the other New Testament writers and, um, and apostles used plants and gardens to teach about the complexities of life and faith, discipleship and the kingdom of God. Because just like life, Just like discipleship, just like the kingdom, gardening is complex, it's multifaceted, and it's varied. So that imagery fits really beautiful to teach simple principles about difficult, complex things. Jesus' teachings and parables are full of this garden imagery. Now, on one level we can say, well, he grew up in an agricultural society, so of course using plants and seeds as metaphor just makes sense. But I think that's a little bit too simple. If we follow the leading of the gospel authors, we see the deep connection back to the imagery that was set in the Old Testament. Now, here's a few examples of some of Jesus' teachings. In Matthew 13, he likens sin to weeds. 
And in Matthew 6, he talks about the lilies in the fields. And we also know about the teachings on the birds eating, the sparrows eating, about faith and worry. Jesus talks about the quality of the soil. He says, but the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times more than what was sown. His teaching on the preparation and quality of the hearers of the faith. And then again in Matthew 13, he talks about growth and provision in God's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, though it is just the smallest of the seeds. Yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds come and perch inside its branches. These parables and teachings all fit into that larger garden pattern found in the Bible. Jesus is talking about the kingdom here as a garden that is growing new, surprisingly large amounts of plants and fruits. And he is inviting people to be planted in that garden. And now probably one of my favourite teachings of Jesus using these gardening images is the one that Marg read out to us today from John 15, where he reveals himself as the source of life that we need to connect ourselves to. Let's read it again, again together. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, I bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I love it. Every time I say let's read together, you guys take it literally. And it's really beautiful. I quite like it. But I never, I never think it's going to happen. Uh, I think that this is a beautiful and profound teaching of Jesus. He is pointing us back to that image of God as the gardener. He names it. He says God's the gardener. And saying to get back to the Garden of Eden state, that we had in Genesis 2, of ultimate connection with God. You do it through remaining in me, remaining in Jesus. In staying connected to me, he says, be my branches. Living in Jesus is like a version of living in Eden. With Jesus, our lives, no matter how hard it gets in this world, are beautiful, fertile, and satisfying. Now, the final part of today's readings was from the book of Revelation. And it brings us sort of full circle, start to finish. We started on page two. We're we're entering in the final chapter. Pardon me, I'm going to get some water. They say preaching from Revelations makes preachers a bit uh, nervous. (laughs) Promise not, I've just got a dry mouth. (laughs) 
Um, so in the book of Revelation, John receives a vision of Jesus enthroned as king over heaven and earth. And as a result of his encounter, he offers encouragement and warning to the seven churches following Jesus in the Asia Minor. And in the conclusion of his letter, John states, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, or the garden of God. Following Jesus means eating from the tree of life now, to a degree. However, John points to the future of what is still to come, the complete experience, if you will, of eating from the tree of life in the new Eden. Jesus himself hints at this truth, saying that the kingdom of God is here, but it's small at the moment, like a mustard seed. And the rest of the book of Revelation reveals how Jesus' followers should live in this now and not yet reality. And in an epic sort of conclusion that would rival any Hollywood movie, we see a picture of the renewed heaven and earth tying together using this garden imagery that's come before it. In Revelation 22, it says, The angel showed me a river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, floating from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of this great city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every single month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And we'll jump a little bit to verses 12 and 14 where it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. This is Jesus speaking this. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robe so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into this city. Now, I was going to sum this up myself, but I read in an article a couple of years ago and I stuck it in this uh, part of my Bible and so I thought I'd share it with you. It's from Robin Whitaker, who's a New Testament scholar right here in Melbourne. And she says this final biblical vision of heaven is a lot like the Garden of Eden that we read in Genesis. Complete with the tree of life, rivers, plants and God. Although this time, it's also an urban, multicultural city. In what is essentially a return to Eden, humans are reconciled with God and they are reconciled with one another. Heaven or paradise in the Bible is a utopian vision designed not only to inspire faith in God, but also hope that people might embody these values of love and reconciliation and connection to God 
in this world here and now. So where does that leave us? The invitation today is twofold. Firstly, it's for us to understand the image of the garden in scripture and how that should inspire us to think always about our connectedness to God, our creator, and Jesus as the reconciler of this connection. But it should also inspire us because of this connection, because this is a profound gift that we should embody those values of love and reconciliation and ultimate connection to our creator in our lives and this world. In acknowledging and being grateful for the connection and life that comes through our connection to God, we want that to flow through us. We want that to actually make us different from everybody else in the world and to let that flow on to them. Taking it all the way back to our first reading today, God is the gardener, the ultimate giver of life to the garden. And he's invited us, humanity, to work alongside him as co-gardeners to see a life of abundance of love and provision and grace pour out into God's whole world and garden. Let's pray together. God, your story and your outworking we know is in some ways so complex and in others so very simple. We thank you that you use imagery that we understand and that can be understand, understood across cultures to encourage us and to invite us. Help us, Lord, today to accept your invitation to come, to follow, to be a part of your vine, to be your branches, extending out into the world. Let us know when you need to prune us. Let us know when it is time to be fruitful and time to rest. And God, we look forward to that ultimate restoration of heaven and earth in your new Eden. Let that spur us on in hope so that we may live today in a more profound way in the now and not yet, embodying your love, your reconciliation and your grace to all that we encounter. Amen.